What's going on, guys? Your boy Daniel DeBrock here, and I'm sitting down with Nick Loff, and we're going to be discussing program design for bodybuilding. So, um, Nick, first off, thanks for jumping on again. For those of you guys who don't know Nick, we actually had a podcast uh, together a while back. I believe it was on exercise selection. Really, really great episode. If you haven't checked it out, definitely make sure you go check that out. Um, Nick, can you just tell uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So, name is Nick Gloff. I'm a bodybuilder is what I do. And I kind of dabble in both the sides of bodybuilding is a specific thing for getting on stage and bringing people to stage and building freaks is really my job is my favorite part of my job. Um, but I've gone to school, have a double bachelor's in exercise science and kinesiology, worked in a biomechanics lab for a few years while doing that. I've been coaching for a few years now, it's, uh, coming up on four years was previously a Camp Jansen coach until I went off on my own, currently off on my own, running my independent team for Team Gloff. And so I'm, I don't know. I don't know what else I should drop in there. Uh, given a couple seminars across the country, looking to expand that into the UK, overseas, maybe Spain, Australia, places like that in the coming year. Other than that, not too much that I want to talk about on myself here. Just I'm a guy that says stuff. That's awesome, man. Speaking is honestly like probably one of my favorite things, actually. It's like you get to go to conferences, you get to travel, you get to meet new people. It's, it's such an awesome experience. It's really dope that you actually have the ability to do that now mm -hmm. um, with, with your business, man. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's been good. Yeah. Do you have any, um, are you just mostly in the U.S. right now then? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything I've done is within the U.S., but I do have a, a fair base of people that keep up with my content from overseas. And actually, a large portion of my con uh, client base is from overseas, mm -hmm. which is pretty unique, I think, which is really cool and really fun for me as a coach, especially because a part, part of what I do with my coaching is I kind of put everybody into the same room together. So it's not just individual one-on-one -on -one contact between me and my people. I put everyone in the same group chat. And so everyone gets to meet everybody. So it's all cross culture, but it's all bodybuilding related and everyone gets to know each other. It's, it's, it's awesome. That's Love wicked, it. dude. What, mm -hmm. uh, for, for your group chat, is that like a WhatsApp thing or is that like a specific app? Yep. Yep. It's on WhatsApp. I do mo almost all of my communications through there. And so it just makes it real easy. Every time someone drops into team Gloff umbrella, I just pop them right in there and then they're off to fend for themselves with the pack of crazies that I have on my team. <laughs> nice, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of to, to kick things off with bodybuilding, there's quite a bit more flexibility than let's say strength training. Um, I guess specifically if we're talking about powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting or something like that in terms of program design, right? Like there, there do have to be kind of iterated programs and obviously programming is going to change a little bit when, when you're in contest prep. And this is sort of like, you know, I'm sort of speaking outside of my scope here now because I do get people jacked, but I don't do contest prep. That's something I specifically stay away from. So, but I would imagine more or less the training is going to stay relatively similar. You're going to kind of try and minimize performance decrements, make a couple of adjustments here and there, but it's not going to be too radically different. Whereas with strength training, there's quite a bit of difference between an off season program, especially if you're kind of running some experimental stuff versus you know, the, the peak week or even kind of leading up, there is a very clear linear sort of relationship there. So 
when it comes to program design, like how do you approach that? And obviously it's going to be different from person to person, but just sort of like a, a broader picture perspective on how you're looking at program design, how you sort of see those things and how you start that kind of process from, you know, conception to actually like written down on paper, sets, reps, intensity, stuff like that. So the biggest thing always is, is going to be what the individual can tolerate and what they can actually do in reality for their schedule is like the number one thing that's the consideration for me. So you can write up the perfect program, but if they literally don't have the days of the week or the hours of the day to do the thing that you want them to do, it's worthless. So from that, you derive the frequency of what you're going to be able to do with them at base. And then with that base frequency of whatever you're going to set up, then you decide based off of what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are, what you've seen maybe in the past or their past reporting, what they've had struggles with trying to bring up certain muscle groups, maybe struggling with specific movement patterns or a group of movement patterns. And then based off of what their recovery is like with the phase that they're in, they're maintaining, they're in a moderate to heavy surplus, they're in a, a moderate to heavy deficit. And what their goal at the end of that current phase is, you decide what you can actually do with the amount of total reserve that you have to work with for their actual performance and recovery capacities. And so frequency being the first thing that kind of dictates all of the things that go into your exercise selection just at the start. Because really putting together sessions, I don't think of it quite as much as maybe most bodybuilding coaches do as like trying to put together a patchwork of, okay, this is the week that we do. This is seven days and we have Monday is chest day and we've got some triceps in there. And then you've got Tuesday is a back width day. And then Wednesday is legs and then off day, whatever you have an arm day and a shoulder day or something like that. Like I don't piece it apart like that and start with a template that way. I always look at it as, okay, what are the base patterns that need to be done in everyone's program regardless? I mean, barring anything that they have a previous injury or a current serious issue with all these patterns that need to be done for their muscular development and their pattern development. So they can gain skill within what they're doing and over the long term continue to progress on those muscle groups that are trained within them. You start from there to figure out exactly what they need to be doing. And that builds on exactly what you need to do to set off their training week, whether that's seven days, nine days, 10 days, 12 days, whatever it ends up being. And that gets dictated by their current level of prowess and training, how much they can tolerate at any one time or any succession of days how many consecutive days they can train, what they can train within close proximity to one another and what they can't, which is all data that is usually very highly correlative. You can get from very small pieces of information that they give you. Looking at someone's physique as a bodybuilding coach rather than a powerlifting coach or a strongman or something, looking directly at what their physique tells you gives you a lot after you build an eye for it, after doing it enough times. You can kind of figure just by looking at somebody in most cases where they're going to struggle with specific movements. Mm-hmm. These patterns are going to be severely deficient based off of what I'm seeing in this physique. These specific problems are likely the case if they're giving me a subjective feedback with their intake or over time with their normal feedback that they would do as a client to let you know, okay, what is the major issue at play here? Is this present throughout one specific thing or many? How many other places does it cross apply where the same pattern isn't present? And so that informs almost all the further decision-making. You know, from there, 
you know how to set up their frequency of specific movements and patterns of body parts. And with that, you figure out what exactly you can stack together and what you can't, and what makes logical sense within sessions based off of normal general guidelines for programming. Then from there, you already have those things set up and that's already a base of your reserve covered. If you have a minimum amount of work done through that framework, you know how many days out of this training week or this training cycle, the micro cycle, that they will actually be doing training. Can they recover from one single base unit of each of those things you've chosen to have them do for that week? Assuming yes, because volume is going to be the vertical scale at which you can manipulate the stimulus you get from all of those things that comprise that base frequency. That makes sense so far? Yeah, no, 100%. Cool. Just got to make sure that I'm not just saying words that don't mean anything. <laughs> no, you know, I actually take like the, basically the same approach with, with my lifters um, in terms of the, like kind of how you were saying, like you look at what you actually need and then the program sort of writes itself once you figure that out. Like if we're talking powerlifting, for instance, it might be like, okay, uh, this person's squat pattern, he's really, really hip dominant. So he just, he just needs to learn how to squat properly and actually load into his quads, right? His quads are just too weak. So we need X amount of frequency and volume on his quads to do this and this and this. We need to take movements the way that they're going to bias his hips and more put that on kind of like pause temporarily. And then you get all that stuff kind of figured out in the back. And then you're like, okay, well, if I am assuming that he needs X amount of sets for this, we definitely can't put 12 sets in one day for front squats. So where are we going to load that throughout the week? And then it just kind of like, you're like, oh, okay, maybe we need to extend it to like a, you know, 0.5 um, or like a, what is it like a two X frequency or something like that, where it's like, okay, we're going to have one microcycle taking 10 days or two weeks or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of like maps itself out on its own. You can kind of play around with it here and there as, as the weeks go on. So I, I'm a big fan of that because it's very like, it's very intuitive and it's also very like feed forward, you know, like it's a feed forward approach where you're, you're, you're looking at, at the athlete response and you're like, okay, how close did I, you know, hit the mark. And then you just kind of tweak things a little bit. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I, I like that. That's it's sort of interesting though, because it does open up a couple of things that you're talking about in bodybuilding. Cause it's interesting to hear you talk about it, not from like uh, here's what muscles necessarily need to be developed. Although obviously that's the, the, the rationale or the objective. It's more like these are the patterns that he's going to struggle with. Mm-hmm. And, and I always found that interesting because it seems like the way that people talk about powerlifting or not even powerlifting, but just let's say like performance-based activities versus bodybuilding-based activities, they talk about them very different. And lately there's been a little bit more overlap I've seen anyways, in terms of those things where we're talking about like output and, and technical execution and how the technical execution is going to load the correct musculature and drive all these other adaptations. And, and so it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about it from a bodybuilding perspective, because it's not something that I get to do anyways for very often obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things that I know that you're also a a big advocate of and feel free to, to correct me if I'm wrong is, um, strength training as well. Like you're obviously a really strong guy. Um, there's one number in particular that I'm kind of chasing or I was chasing before I kind of got sick was the, the 585 for seven. So I did 565 for five at, uh, at an eight RPE. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of getting there. And then I just got taken on. I was like, motherfucker. Um, so you're obviously a very, very strong guy as well as being really jacked. And so, um, I'm just wondering what sort of role you see, not necessarily strength training, but let's say 
higher intensity activities or some of those kind of base patterns, um, what their role is in, in bodybuilding for, for your preference and your experience. So I would say that's a little bit of a split topic there Yeah, it is the patterning and then the high intensity type work. Mm-hmm. So they kind of go a little bit hand in hand, obviously, because the highest intensity type work, that's relative intensity and absolute load you're going to move. That's going to be in the same wheelhouse. It's going to be the big basic patterns that you get the opportunity to do that with, but they're not necessarily the same thing all the time. So I would say that the high intensity work, doing it on bigger movements that you have the opportunity to do it with ends up lending over time. As long as you build the resilience properly through it and you don't start adjusting all of your parameters throughout your training to just accommodate for your ability to do that, it ends up bringing you to a place where you can actually start to pull back over time away from the absolute loading that you use within those bigger base patterns And you have acquired that strength that you can apply into all of those smaller patterns and regress patterns that we use more likely and for more work and more volume within bodybuilding and be more effective with them. The high intensity work is a skill, obviously, because strength is a skill, but taking it into the powerlifting realm, doing a single or a double or a triple it's going to be really limited on how much actual hypertrophy benefit you have in that moment. It's not really doing much for you at that point, but if you take it a little bit further and you kind of cut in between the two realms where you're looking more into the hypertrophy range, quote unquote, you're going to sit between four and seven reps is about that sweet spot. Or if you can nail into there with those really big patterns, you're not taking it so far that you have these, a certain class of technical failure points that would be present. You're also missing those another class of technical failure points that would be present at higher intensities at lower rep targets. So you kind of cut in between into this perfect little zone where you can really build your skill and your efficiency to move extremely high loads, but will still be in a relative range that will cross apply because it's right adjacent to the loading levels in the rep targets that you will be using in your hypertrophy training, that it will actually work to cross apply into your skills. Otherwise things like, and going back, uh, tracking back a little bit into what I was talking about for just base programming, how you would go about it. You're always thinking about what you can do to set about for the longest trajectory forward. That gives you the progress you're looking for. If you're looking at it in that light, Having these movements that you build that way gives you the ability to learn how to do all the basic things that your body should be able to do under extreme stresses that are still applied into those things that aren't directly tested that way. Think about a leg press, something like that, which is a bodybuilding, more focused movement. We're going to use that a lot for our knee extension, hip extension type work. You can really get yourself braced in. You don't really have very many technical points of failure there, although they're present and they go up and their likelihood of technical failure happens as the load keeps on increasing. This is something in in this specific case that I've talked about pretty extensively, actually, on my Instagram and on my YouTube videos, because there's this like misconception within bodybuilding and people that kind of observe it from outside. Even it's like you could just sit on a machine for bodybuilding and just do it. Like it's fine. 
Like you're just getting output, right? It doesn't take any skill. Like, no, if you're moving 1200 pounds on a leg press and the goal rep target is 15 to 20, if you don't have the ability to create a stable foundation internally and using the external uh, footholds that you have and handholds that you have and all the contact points present in leveraging your body in the specific way that you need to, to create the internal basing that makes all of those mostly unmoving joints stay mostly unmoving and the moving joints being able to move the way they properly should around the axis of the unmoving joints. For that to happen under that amount of load, you need to have the control over your bracing, your ability to leverage yourself and continue to maintain positions where it should be. You could have that 15, well, I said 1200, 1200 pound leg press, right? You could sit down on that at that load and you could either not get it up for one if you fail at any one point within that setup or your control over your body within that setup, or you can make it to 20. And that's it. That pass fail margin is a hair thin. And so when I look at these bigger movements, like a squat, for example, you get really, really good and really, really strong within a squatting pattern. That is the highest level that you're going to be able to go with our normal tools for us to control what our body's doing, controlling the unmoving parts, controlling the moving parts, parrying the forces that are being acted upon us, and then redistributing them as needed, and then redirecting forces and creating enough for us to move the implement that's trying to move us. With that being the nature of the beast, you get that good at the skill of doing that on something where you have no real safety net. It's your body doing all of it. You can then apply those skills into things where that pass fail margin is going to be a little bit wider than what it is on that squat pattern or that deadlift pattern or that free press pattern. You have that ability to cross apply into those other things that it takes much more and more and more loading for you to get to that point where that hair margin starts to become the reality of the situation you're in. So it's really a skill building technique. And aside from the skill building of being able to tolerate all the creating those positions and handling forces, it gives you the ability to generate the amount of force that's necessary for you to make that next leap in loading on those movements that you will be doing for your hypertrophy-based work. And that's one of the missing keys to what I think people look at hypertrophy as. And the way I would look at it as there's a two-way system for hypertrophy to happen, it's feed forward and feedback, loading in volume or output on the things that you're doing are going to increase over time as a result of hypertrophy happening, right? More muscle tissue you have, the more your ability to do higher volumes with higher loads is. But, but muscle isn't related to strength. Oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear people say shit like that, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, why do weight classes exist then? It, yeah. Yeah. It makes a whole lot of sense. And it breaks down more and more the further you get away from pure, like the, the neurological research range. mechanistic stuff. I know it's like anyone with like you ask a two-year-old and they're gonna be like, who's stronger, this guy or that guy who looks like a house. And she's going to be like, Oh, that guy. And you're like, yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. Yep. And then there's a conversation between leveraging on specific movements, 
and whether or not you having more muscle helps with your leveraging and the fact that strength is a neurological adaptation. Neurological adaptation is really what strength is, but you can only do what you can do with the muscle tissue you have as the working equipment to make that nervous signal do the job. You have more equipment to do the thing, that nervous signal, as high as it's ever going to go, if you have the highest amplitude of that nervous signal possible for your ability to adapt with strength, you have more muscle tissue to enact that job it's being told to do by the nervous system, you're stronger. Yeah, trying to run a freaking like a Tesla or something with like a, a double A battery. It's like, okay, good luck with that, you know? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just No, no, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but what I was saying is uh, I can cap off that that whole that whole tirade here with I see those bigger movements as the best wedge points that we have available within bodybuilding for us to learn how to do the finer points that would be almost like more in the wheelhouse of real strength training, powerlifting, strongman. What is the core of all of those things? It's your ability to do a skill under really high loads, high pressures. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And the reasons why the strong men and the powerlifters can lift so much more weight on the base patterns and bodybuilders do is one, because bodybuilders really don't practice them and they don't gear their training towards it. But that not gearing their training towards it also lends them to not having the base skill that allows us to move our bodies at the best possible capacity that these powerlifters and strongmen do. And it's not about doing the bench, the squat, and the deadlift specifically. It's about having the ability centrally, which is really what we're looking for, the central capacity within the actual central body for us to control forces as they pass through us and how we redirect them absorb them and then produce forces to move and implement or affect our surroundings. That's a skill that every human body has. That's the same skill that we're manipulating to do our work in bodybuilding, but it's just a higher level skill that's learned by powerlifters and strongmen within their training, the way they set it up because it's not a direct training target for bodybuilders. Yeah. If you bring it underneath the umbrella, a little bit of bodybuilding, it's just another tool that allows you to, you know, actually utilize what you have. If you have no ability to, to actually understand how to leverage yourself, how to control what happens at the central body, that meaning breathing, bracing, normal gait mechanics, those three cornerstones, if you don't have control of those because you never train them, then you have the muscle tissue that has the ability to do all those things. You have the structures that have the ability to do all those things at a high level, but you never utilize them. So your ability to move up and up and up with this feed forward feedback mechanism of hypertrophy is then limited to one side. Having, like I was saying, the two sides of it is you having more ability to do more work as a result of having more muscle tissue, hypertrophy being the driver of you having more ability to generate output. But at the same token, the more that you push on the output within a recoverable range, in the ability to repetitively perform at the same baseline and slightly higher levels will create the stimulus for hypertrophy. And so they bounce back and forth across each other in an infinite loop, as long as you don't have a complete breakdown of the system. If you don't control for having absolutely no awareness of what your body can actually do, how much force you can actually produce, which therefore is going to end up bringing you to technical failures before muscular failures on bigger movements, 
you never actually reach the highest levels of performance that your body's already capable of doing. If you're not touching that, then you're always hitting a lower artificial ceiling of what you're possibly capable to do. And in no world is that going to be the best level of hypertrophy that you can get ever. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think I see a lot of similar stuff in, in uh, powerlifting, right? When people will say, not even just powerlifting, just strength training in general, where it's like, oh, you know, um, let's say corrective exercises or something like that, where it's like, oh, you have this sort of chest fall pattern. Therefore, we need to do pen squats or this or whatever it might be, right? Um, and it's like, okay, but that's only as good as the execution, <laughs> you know? And so, so if, like, I totally agree, like, if you don't have the ability to execute, then it doesn't matter what you, like, you can give them any exercise, it's just not going to work. And obviously, there are certain exercises that maybe bias it. So, like, if someone has that pattern doing a zombie squat, probably going to be pretty effective because the bar is just going to dump forward. But I've also seen people do that really, really poorly. And I'm like, oh, we, we need yep. something a little different. We just yeah. I had to toss them. At this particular individual, I had to toss them a leg press. And like, you know, you have to kind of figure out these little funky methods to, to get them to actually perform effectively. But um, yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And so what are some of the underutilized tactics? Because I know, especially more lately, I've been hearing people, and again, I'm not fully in the bodybuilding scene. So I'm probably like, you know, several several uh deviations away but um i'm hearing people more and more kind of hating on the compound lifts a little bit um being like oh well, why we can just do machines and i totally understand that and i'm like yeah okay i think the arguments in general are reasonable but i also think there's still a, a very strong case to be made for those things but what are some of the other underutilized tactics because i would say that that's probably one of them maybe, maybe i'm wrong but what are some of the underutilized tactics um, for hypertrophy training that you see people kind of either, either scoffing at or just sort of overlooking? Hmm. That's a pretty good question. Um, <clears throat> I'll have to escape my own bubble of what I typically see within uh, the people that I usually pay attention to uh, for me to answer that question. Because a lot of the people that are in my more immediate vicinity are going to be a little bit more alike to what I do and what I like to see in programming, just because that's kind of how our, you know, our thought silos build themselves yeah. in the current day. But for general bodybuilding at large, I would say, honestly, one, one of the bigger uh, tactics that doesn't get utilized is, and probably the biggest one that isn't utilized is the use of compound movements. Honestly, that is probably the number one biggest thing. And ever since I started being, you know, a coach and I guess I can quote unquote, a public figure within coaching, bodybuilding, everything, that's been the number one thing that I've been railing against like the whole time consistently is because that's pretty much a consistent trope throughout bodybuilding, like for all of time, it seems, or at least since more modern machinery has been put together. Back in the old days, you know, golden, uh, golden era type stuff, they were all about using everything, but more in the modern day where we have a lot more machines being produced and gyms are kitted out with the, I mean, honestly, some really crazy equipment now, uh, nowadays, including prime and all the rest of it, which is really awesome stuff, but it takes away from the base of what our bodies are, you know, normally moving like in doing things that actually rely on our bodies alone to do the work. So that would be the biggest one. And I'm not going to harp too much on that 
at this point because I kind of just did for the last question anyway. Uh, it's, it's become a little bit more common to see people actually utilizing more intelligent structures with building frequency into more body parts across a training week. Although is becoming more common. Yes, it is. Okay. So that tactic is starting to get utilized and picked up a little bit more with a little bit more of the, the ebb and flow of what happened with really, honestly, we can give credit to people like Jordan Peters trained by JP who really popularized it a few years ago. Is it a handful of years ago now of actually doing upper lowers or push pull legs for people really across the majority of their training uh, for almost all of the years that they're going to be doing it. And they're trying to develop, but that also had its, its rise and its fall fall over the last two years or so. And it's starting to rise back again. So that's a tactic that I would say that kind of comes and goes but it has been a cornerstone of what I think is going to be the most intelligent way to design for most people based off of pretty much the way I described how I build programming regardless. Like in the beginning, you build the horizontal foundation and then over you know, the feedback that you get from the horizontal foundation and pretty much general guidelines of how you can see them being able to recover is just a human system. Yeah. Then you can build vertically across all of the other all the other pieces of output that we have available to work with, which I mean, just as a quick aside, the way I'd term output would be the conglomeration of volume load, relative intensity, and what I would call general movement competency demands. And that works as a kind of a formula that you can utilize that will bring you to generally what the output is and then the stimulus versus fatigue ratio that you have as a result of them. And that's not a talk that we have to have at this moment. We can talk about that later if you wanted to, but that would be one of the lesser utilized tactics in the bodybuilding world that I am not as much of a part of the more classic uh, way of programming. That's more body part split oriented. It's not really something that gets utilized enough from what I see. And on, as time goes on as a coach and having more people that I didn't have within my original base of following prior it's like having a little bit more exposure in the recent like year or two years, having more people that wouldn't have found me originally, but kind of get brought in from the norm, more normal bodybuilding world, finding their way to me and then getting some of those people as clients and people interested in doing what I do. I find more and more than I would have imagined that a, a tactic that they're not really familiar with is actually doing a more high frequency program with more body parts split across more days of their training split. Mm -hmm. That is one of those things that is still underutilized, even though within my own silo, uh, thought bubble and silo, I kind of thought that everyone understood as a good idea, but come to find out it's not really unanimously agreed upon. So that would be one. Um, aside from that, underutilized tactics within bodybuilding, it's really getting me to think here, man. Oh, um, movements aside from just being base compound movements, things that actually address base movement competencies. Like I was saying with the big compounds that they do that, but things more so in the realm of not exactly the movements that generate the most amount of output is what most people would understand it to be, but have very specific application to adding to the output capacity of other things. 
things that address gate mechanics is a specific one. But like people, if they can avoid it, almost never do any sort of a split squat movement. <laughs> Everyone hates them. And they don't do any lunging type movements, really, if they can avoid it. For any sort of upper body work, people typically tend, when they're not as in the know about how mechanics work, they typically don't work through any unilateral movements where they make sense biomechanically, really, because there's a lot of movements that we default to as bilateral movements, especially with upper body training that make very little sense to do bilaterally, but we still do them that way. Like an example would be a lat pull down. Most cases, bilateral lat pull downs work for a very, very small portion of people Mm -hmm. to actually target the lat very well. But then underutilized tactic being that that's the topic people end up doing that just because, I mean, it gives the name to itself. It's a lat pull down. We have all of these bars and attachments and all these things that I could do a lat pull down with. So I'm going to do a lat pull down. It's going to hit my lat. Right. Not necessarily. And so that, that can lead me directly into another one, which is a big one for me is just not really understanding that the way that your movements should be set up or the way that you select them is going to have to be based off of what you actually can do and what you understand how to do with any sort of biomechanical basis for your movement choice. That is something else that doesn't really get understood very well, which I would put a lot of that onto the shoulders of like old style coaches, because that's one of the things that gets perpetually propagated by old style coaches that never really dabbled into the deeper sciencey stuff and just kind of did what worked for them. And a lot of times when they default to, I did what worked for my people, it ends up being, well, who were your people that really made it? Freaks. It's like, okay, well, your template for what works is based off of these freakish human beings that they could literally look at a dumbbell in a rack and start to grow. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, but is that going to work for those clients like at the end of your roster, at your 100... 200 whatever person on there that you're just collecting the check from that you know that they're not really going to make it to being on the big stage where you actually care talking as these bigger coaches these bigger coaches that are like old style thinking like the top top level Mm -hmm. honestly they care about their olympians they care about their really high level nationals they don't really put in the same type of care in the same kind of attention And they don't really build their principles from feedback off of the people that have the hardest time with doing this. They build their principles and what they say works based off of what worked with the people that anything would have worked with. And so that backwards kind of thinking is, that is a tactic that is used within the more old style coaching methods, which shouldn't really be there, but then trickles down into people that were either taught by them they were coached by them at some point or they're heavily influenced by them. And they don't really have a counter for them to understand that that's really the opposite way that you should be running things is taking the principles that you work for everyone based off of the people that have the hardest time getting things to happen. If you build your principles off of what you can do with those people that struggle the most, you'll have a better idea of just how wide that margin is for like how close you can throw that dart for people to get it right. 
And if you know that that margin gets wider and it closes, but you're only focusing on that bullseye, it's like, okay, well, these people that naturally land in this bullseye zone, that's all I need to aim for. Cool. You don't really get any useful information that way. And then everything propagates out from that point where, well, you know, I guess it really isn't your thing, right? It's like, maybe you're just not a good bodybuilder. Maybe this, maybe that. And then you, you hear the stories of, well, I never got any attention from my coach, or I had this really horrible experience because they told me that I was worthless or this, that, the other, which I've heard a thousand times, which is really, really disheartening, honestly. But that is a tactic that is used in underutilized tactic. I'll turn it to answer the question properly. Underutilized tactic within bodybuilding is overall actually addressing people where they are. And then knowing how to guide your decision-making based off of principles that work at the lowest level of operation and then scale them as needed to meet people where they are to bring them to the next level, knowing that you can go from the floor all the way to the ceiling rather than trying to go from standing at the top, looking down and go like, why aren't you here? Just get, just get, up, get up here. Just do, do what I said and get up here. Like, it doesn't work that way underutilized tactics. Yeah, that's, that's kind of an interesting one too. Cause I, I definitely agree that if you have, like, if you can get someone who's really weak and skinny and just kind of shitty genetics all around, if you can get them good progress, then you like really, really know what you're doing. Not just from like the science side, but from the application and buy-in side too. Cause like, I've never been a big believer of the whole like non-responder bullshit that people talk about, you know, like, I mean, obviously, obviously it's the case that some people just have genetic predispositions for being a freak. That's obviously the case. Like you look at Shaq and then you look at like a short Asian dude, they're not the same. They're not even the same species, basically. You know what I mean? I'm not even the same species as Shaq. Like that dude's a fucking monster. But, but it's like, it's like, okay, so now you're going to compare the one, like the 0.001% and try and like make some sort of like, you know, broad statement about your potential, you know, and all the people who I've heard say this stuff are like, it's like, Oh, how long have you trained for? Like, seriously? And they're like, Oh, like three years. It's like, Oh, okay. Come back to me in 20 years. And then we'll see how massive and jacked like and strong you are, or you just will do the same shit and be jerking off the whole time. You know what I mean? So that that definitely, that definitely makes sense. I, I feel like a lot of that stuff is, it's tricky, but that's, I think a lot of that stuff as well, like you said, is where a lot of the coaching side of things, a lot of the soft skills come in where you have to have those conversations. You have to have the actual desire to solve those problems and be like, okay, I do need to be patient. I need to maybe understand that this person might take four weeks to progress like one pound or just take, like maybe it takes six weeks to correct a simple pattern that they're messing up in their squat or whatever it might be. You know, and it's like, I think it's, I know at least for myself anyways, when I first became a coach, it was very difficult for me to separate that because I always wanted to give people results now. So I was always trying to push, push, push for for more. And uh, now that I've been a coach for, you know, quite, quite a while, it's more like, it's not up to me to decide, you know, I just tell them like, Hey, we like, they're like, Oh, how fast will this take? And I'm like, up to you, man. Like, I'll give you this. And this is sort of what I'd expect generally speaking, but it'll take X amount based on whatever trade-offs you're willing to make and all this other stuff. And so I never really, I don't talk about timelines all that much with, 
strength athletes, if, if I'm being honest, I don't think it's really relevant, you know, like you can kind of have projections. Like I have projections for all my athletes for who are competitive anyways, but yeah. uh, for everyone else, yeah. it's like, yeah, I'm like, dude, I don't know. Like whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I, I agree. I'm the same way. And I get questioned all the time by my own people. It's like, oh, well, what, what is my weight going to be? You think when I'm all the way down at the end of this diet, it's like, I've never seen you diet before. I don't yeah. know where it is. we're going to find out where it but is. You're an expert. Aren't you? Shouldn't you know? Yeah. It's like, I, I should just know. I'm, I can give you a general bar, ballpark of where it's going to be, but I also don't want to give you a number. And then you're like, all right, it's a race to the bottom. Let's go. Because <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. that happens. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't don't start doing twenty thousand steps now, so that you can get yourself down that next like five pounds to get under that next like ten pound marker for yeah. you to try and make it all the way there right now. And I also don't want you to think, you know, you know, slipping in a little bit extra like food here and there. It's like, oh, I'm just I'm just getting bigger that much faster. Like going out to five guys three times a week and not saying anything is like, yeah, I'm gonna get to two fifty going to do it this season. It's like, mm. <laughs> like <"Mm-mm>, no, that's <laughs> not how it's done. Yeah, man. It's, it's a, uh, it's a long ass process. Like it's, when you look back, it's crazy because you're like, man, I made so much progress. But then at the same time, you're like, man, it takes a really long time to, to actually get somewhere like really impressive. Mm-hmm. So I, I did want to talk a little bit about more specific tactics for progression and, and undulating training. So like, again, in strength training, we, we might have like, okay, I'm going to do a top single at like a two that or like a, sorry, I'm thinking RIR, but like top single at an eight, that's like powerlifting one-on-one kind of thing. Right. Um, and then you do some back off work at higher volumes or whatever, maybe some fives or some eights or whatever the heck it might be. And so, and then that's a pretty easy progression strategy. You keep the RR or RP static, and then you increase load so slowly over time. So, w- what are some of those specific tactics that you have? Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be like a set and rep progression or whatever it can be, but I do want to give people something maybe specific to kind of get their mind thinking about different possibilities for for increasing their output or for maybe progressing their training over time. So, really, for the major distinction between bodybuilding training and more strength-based training because of the, the actual goal that we're looking to get yours is pounds on the bar. Yeah. Bodybuilding is pounds on the body. (laughs) So looking at it that way, I mean, we don't have to periodize in the same way that you guys do. Mm -hmm. Our periodization is very, very different. And there's a lot to be said about really periodization doesn't make any difference in hypertrophy. I wouldn't really agree there. But the argument is there more so as it's kind of a shell of an argument, I would say, where taking it by the definition of what we look at periodization to be within specific sports. No, we don't need to have a specific peaking level like periodization cycle. And we're also not going to be playing with all of these other specific type skill components, extremely specific timelines for what we're going to be doing for this and that thing, because these adaptations conflict with each other or like moving absolute tonnage, like powerlifters and strong men do that is going to just by its own nature, sideline you very quickly. If you aren't very careful with how you periodize the rest of the components of your program. Hypertrophy is really, since it's such a general adaptation in itself anyways, Really, the only thing that guides your periodization over 
long periods of time is what is going to add more tissue to me overall. What is really going to add the most tissue? Getting the most amount of output, as I can quote myself from earlier, volume, load, relative intensity, and then general movement competency demands coming together is your output total that gives you a certain amount of stimulus versus fatigue. If you always keep yourself below the red line with your stimulus versus fatigue and your total output, you continue to build more tissue. All of those things are what you manipulate in one way or the other based off of your tolerances at the time. And so if we're looking to, within my paradigm, looking to actually push on strength metrics within the range that is still helpful for bodybuilding, building skill, but still having the ability to put on sizable amounts of muscle tissue within those rep targets, you have times where you think a little bit more strength oriented and a little bit less where you utilize the opportunity to create those skills and entrench those skills and pull back on the amount of output total that you have being comprised by all of the rest of the things that would usually be in your programming at higher levels. And then you just undulate over time, whether or not you're utilizing that for that specific movement or in general, doing it for more than one pattern, whether or not you have more of those other things that are specifically hypertrophy oriented at the forefront and then being level across all things or slightly de-emphasized for more of a strength basis. Mm-hmm. That's really the, the first level look at how that periodization would change over time. And that's barring to like what would change between you being in a more maintenance level position or you're in a deficit or you're in a surplus. And then within the deficit umbrella, whether or not it's a deficit for a prolonged period of time a very short period of time for like a mini cut for the specific reasons you'd be doing that, or it is for the goal of getting on stage. Mm-hmm. Cause those are all separate distinctions and the way that you would go about that would be different, but the ways that you would do it are just scaled from one another in a way that would make sense for the kind of ability you have to tolerate the output that you're getting. So it all just keeps on tying itself back to what you can perform and recover from over time in where you want to allocate all of that energy that you have reserved for into what of those really accelerator pedals that you have for looking at your overall output as like being on an RPM gauge. That's the way I like to think about it. And output is comprised of volume, load, relative intensity, and general movement competency demands. I'll, I'll just define that quickly. General movement competency demand is just how much internal capacity is necessary for you to do the movement. Mm -hmm. Squat, the highest uh, internal capacity is necessary for you to actually do the movement for a single rep versus a leg press. And then further than that would be like a leg extension or something like that. As you go more and more externally stabilized, the less the general movement competency is. And that within itself is a variable that as you scale it up will generate more stimulus and more fatigue as that scales across the spectrum, just to give that a quick explanation, but output being volume, load, relative intensity, and then general movement competency, all those comprising your output, you're going to be looking at the RPM gauge and which one of them for what specific movement and what type of modulation you have between all of these four accelerator pedals is how you dictate the way that everything looks. So if we're thinking with the specific example in mind of you trying to build more strength for a specific pattern, 
within this period of time, you're going to have your foot heavily down on relative intensity and load for that, right? Mm -hmm. General movement competency will also be down. So what has to be sacrificed to a degree? Volume. It's the only one left. And so your volumes everywhere else is going to have to be lowered to accommodate for the amount of output that's taken up on the RPM gauge by all of those other three pedals being slammed to the floor. Then how much that actually takes up is going to be determined by how many movements you do that for, just how strong you actually are within those movements with absolute loading. And then how many other things you're trying to work on simultaneously and what the adaptation you're looking for is. If your bottlenecks are skill related, it's going to be lower. General movement competency is going to be the main thing that takes away your ability to output because your failures are going to be uh, going to become a bigger issue before load is at its peak. Your relative intensity can't really be at its peak. And so those things are eased off. Make sense? Volume can be higher in that case, as long as you're using some of that volume to be placed towards skill gaining within that movement and placing the rest of it where it needs to be in hypertrophy demands. And then over time, if you're thinking about trying to bring up everything, and I'll use just to make it as easy as I can, because I'm already making this pretty convoluted. If you have somebody going for five years and they're not planning to compete really. So we're thinking of this really long timeline that we're trying to make as much progress from start to finish. What you'd want to do with all that time is take periods where you're not really trying to de-emphasize hypertrophy for any, any real reason, because that's not part of the goal. You don't really want to pull that back that far at any point in time at all. You're trying to utilize another adaptation to then bolster the hypertrophy you get over that broader period of time, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of being like a powerlifter or a strongman where you might be specifically nailing in on one thing really hard, like your bench sucks. So you do as much bench work as you possibly can. You do it with super high frequency. You're trying to do it with multiple different skilled setups so that you can start to gain the ability to do that quickly. You kind of do that at a lesser scale within hypertrophy, using the closest variation you can to that base skill without more physical limitations that may be inherent to you by structure or will be inherent to you based off of your limitations from prior injuries or other issues that you just can't get yourself through within a shorter means of actually applying yourself to gaining skills. So rather than trying to do a back squat for a bodybuilder, you could do a safety bar squat, something like that. Or instead of doing a conventional deadlift from the floor, maybe you can do a pure hinge better and you can do an RDL in that case. Things of the like. Still achieves the same goal. So you're gonna build yourself into doing that work, higher loading, lesser volume, higher frequency, and then you lower all of the work that is going to be high in general movement competency at that same time. So you're not likely to do, if this is your goal at the time, a large squatting pattern, a large deadlifting pattern, and large pressing patterns at the same exact time. If you're trying to push on the strength that you can get on one of them as hard as you can, you don't have that capacity to really push on the other ones. You de-emphasize those other ones to the degree that you can still move them along and you de-escalate those patterns into less internally complicated movements to do 
So you can still get all the development necessary from those patterns you're doing them, but you're not going to be taking up from that same reserve. You're trying to specifically cordon off for that one thing that needs the most attention. And then as time goes on and, you know, hypertrophy actually does happen, you're going to move from having a specific emphasis around one thing while having most of the rest of your reserves placed mostly evenly across everything else that you need or allocated based off of need with your own development at the time. You just change whatever one of those things is the most needed variable to be brought up. Then you think in the longer term or medium term, okay, quads aren't that awesome. Legs overall aren't that awesome right now. What do I need to focus on? I need to have the ability to train my legs better. Squatting. Are you good at it or are you not good at it? What level do you have of that ability relative to your amount of development right now? Build your ability in that skill now. Continue working on your leg-based patterns, the hypertrophy ones that are more specifically hypertrophy-based, or bolster specifically that movement at the time, and then put the rest of your work elsewhere. Continue that, and then you de-emphasize that one single thing that you're trying to work on most, and then spread that amount of work across all of the things that you have that need that. All the rest of your resources are more evenly allocated, and you continue with your base hypertrophy work. And then you spike that structure again and put it onto the next thing that actually requires that amount of attention. And then you continue to cycle through them as your weaknesses become strengths, and then you keep on going and then they keep on undulating between each other based off of their patterns, which also harkens back on why I don't look at it directly as a bodybuilding coach looking for body parts only as you need this body part. You need that body part mm-hmm. looking at patterns because patterns that we do, the larger ones are specifically the patterns that we do as large compound movements because they utilize the most amount of muscle tissue. They do it with multiple muscle groups to do the same pattern. What's an effective way of getting all that work in if not doing it all at the same time? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think there, there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit that you said there that I think is, is really relevant to the whole, like even periodization sort of paradigm. Cause I'm, I'm sort of a big believer that, or I don't think I'm a big believer it's something that I've thought about for a long time, and I definitely suspect it to be the case that when people talk about staleness of, let's say, an approach, whether it's strength training, hypertrophy, whatever, I'm not entirely convinced that you actually reach a point where the progress starts to slow down I, from a particular stimulus. I, I sort of suspect that it's more just that the level of engagement goes down, output goes down. You're not that focused. You're not that excited. You're like, fuck, I've been doing three sets of eight to 12 for like six months now. And it was working really, really well, but I just could give two fucks about it. And so um, you end up switching it up, which kind of does bring back and should anyways expand the, the sort of conversation around periodization in general for, for hypertrophy, and like allostatic. Do you, do you know um, John Kiley? Uh No. No, he, you'd probably be really interested in his paper. He wrote a paper, a review paper, I think it was 2019 or something like that. I'll send it over to you once I'm done. Um, but he had a critique on, on, on periodization, essentially. And he's like, it was really interesting. We don't have to get into it. But um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a really, really interesting thought. And one of the things he talked about was allostatic load and like 
engagement. And he actually said that probably one of the most important things, which I was shocked because this is a very high level coach. He said, one of the most important things in my programming, one of the things that drives most of the results of my athletes is their belief in me as a coach. And I was like, holy shit, that's for, for, for that guy to be saying that I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Obviously buying is huge, but uh, you know, I think that kind of plays into other things as well. Like just your psychological engagement in, in something, how much you enjoy it, uh, how much you're actually going to push. Cause like Bulgarian split squats, I hate them so much. Like <laughs> I program them for myself, but mm-hmm. I fucking hate them so much. It's like when you get really good at squatting, it's like I get nervous before big sets, but it's like you're good at it. You know, you never get good at Bulgarian split squats. It's just, it's always shit, no matter how strong you are. It's just always awful. So I don't know. But uh, I think you had a lot of really, really great feedback on how to undulate training on, you know, where the emphasis needs to be for kind of increasing and scaling up and down those dials. Um, and uh, I think that definitely gives a lot of application for, for where people are at in, in their cycle, what their long-term progression strategies are, and kind of how to sort of structure that big picture. Um, so I, I really appreciate that you actually did kind of root it in some practical recommendations of like the specifics, uh, because a lot of the times it can kind of get a little bit too theoretical, yep. um, which is why I wanted a little bit more concrete, like obviously it's not going to be the same strength training because it's not like, Oh, three by five, this is what I do. Right. But, yeah. um, but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the, the actual like big picture explanation of, of how you actually structure and organize your training for, for your athletes and for yourself. Um, so I, I don't think I really have anything actually else to, to, to ask. I think we did a pretty good job covering most of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Um, do you have any sort of closing thoughts or anything like that? No, I think we pretty much covered it other than I do want to say that I think you pretty much nailed it on that last observation talking about the the John Kiley thing is that really it does. I mean, I, I've had this critique it, mentally, internally, I haven't really talked too much about it because I like to stay in my own lane as much as I can and not ruffle too many feathers because I don't need it. But the people that go into their like really long careers that don't end up really continuing to make progression. I really don't, I don't really subscribe to the idea. Maybe it's me being young and hopeful, (laughs) but I don't really think that they hit as concrete of a wall with their progression as we think that they do. I think that you're right. And it really is a belief in what they're able to do and then what they're actually willing to continue to do to get there. I think the biggest difference between the people that are in their thirties that are now resign themselves to, okay, I've been bodybuilding for 20 years and, you know, I've been just hitting the same things forever. And maybe I'm not as strong as I once was right now, where I've had this and this injury over the last years, whatever. And it's just like, okay, well, what more am I going to do in this? And those kinds of things start to entertain their mind a little bit more so than, you know, the fact that they, or to say it differently, those things start to take up their mental space rather than what they had 10 years in the past. They're like, I'm going to breach this next level and I'm going to do it now. Mm. Like that change in mindset, like it's all, it's present in pretty much every single one of these like older lifters or older bodybuilders that we see. I don't know if it's the same thing in powerlifting necessarily, 
But in bodybuilding, we have an entire old guard that all do that. They're like, they talk down at the younger generations like, oh, well, as you continue to do this, your rate of ability to progress is going to decrease until it's pretty much nothing. And then you're waiting on your next two ounces of muscle built in the next two years. And that's what you got to look forward to. It's like, or maybe you actually gave a shit 10, 15 years ago, enough for you to push, actually take yourself to the final capacity that you could do at that time on a consistent basis. And you set yourself and prepared yourself mentally and physically to be able to do it. And so you actually made it there and breached those next levels time and time and time again. But now that you think that you've had your last days, you're just not willing to actually prepare yourself for it. You don't think that you're able to, so you don't. And now you're looking at, yes, you're putting on an ounce of muscle this year because you've not really done anything to continue to try and press at your limits because you have all of these either real or imagined barriers that have precluded you from being able to do so or that just discourage you from being able to think that you can. And I, I very firmly believe that is, that is the case for the majority rather than, you know, just it being something that is a, a matter of course that we end up having absolutely no ability to progress after X amount of time. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, even you look at someone like Dan green, right. He's been training for like what, 25 years and he's still making progress. And you know, I've heard people be like, yeah, but he's a freak. He's a genetic freak. And it's like, okay, but if he's a genetic freak, you would still expect a, like, you would still expect him not to be hitting PRs, but it's like that dude hits PRs like every two weeks on mm -hmm. all of his lifts. And it's like, if he's actually a genetic freak, you would have assumed that he would have pretty much topped out his potential at 20, 25 years. And it's like, no, he's still getting stronger. He's still making all his progress. And so I would, I would just say like, you know, if he's able to do that, being one of the strongest guys in the world, I don't know why the same process wouldn't apply to, to people with, you know, less, less optimal genetics or whatever, because it's not like, okay, sure. Yeah. Maybe you're not going to squat 900 pounds or whatever, but like you could still get better because he's in his mid forties. You know what I mean? He's still, he just hit like a, he's hitting like eight something pound SSB bar squat. And you're just like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, dude, freak, man. it's crazy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, well, that, that, yeah, no, no, that was, that was a really interesting conversation and I appreciate you coming on. Um, where, where can people find you? Uh, everyone can find me at Instagram at Nick Gloff, N-I-C-K-G-L-O-F-F. -F. And that's pretty much the hub for everything of where you can find all my links uh, in the bio on my Instagram page. You can find my website to teamgloff.com where I've got all of my coaching housed. So if you're interested in any of that, you can go check that out. And I also have a active YouTube channel, which is just my name, just Nick Gloff again. And then that is all there. That's pretty much everything that you can find me doing. So, awesome, yeah. man. so all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give him a follow. Check out his YouTube channel. He puts up tons of awesome content on a regular basis. Nick, thanks for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it.